The following audio is from Story City Church in Burbank, California. For more information on Story City, go to storycitychurch.com. Well, good morning. How's everybody doing this morning? Everybody good? Well, let me be the first to say Merry Christmas. Can I do that this morning? Yes. If you have a Scrooge sitting beside you, feel free to point him out this morning. It's all good. I personally watched four Christmas movies this week, and so I'm just wondering what's What's, uh, what you guys are waiting on. But anyways, well, hey, we're glad you're here this morning. My name is Matt. I'm the lead pastor here, preaching and vision. Excited to open up the scriptures with you today. If you happen to bring a Bible, I want to invite you to open it up to the book of Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6 is our text this morning. As you're opening the Bible to Luke chapter 6, we're going to put it on the screens, by the way, if you happen not to bring a Bible. Let me just uh, step out for a moment and say this. Um, <clears throat> if you come here often, you know you never know what to expect when you come to the Colony Theater. We share this stage. We only have it one time a week. And so there's currently a play going on in the Colony Theater. And I just want to say our team walked into, quite honestly, a disaster this morning. But our production team does an amazing job to get us ready for Sunday mornings. Can we thank our production team every single week? And then while we're just thinking about the space that God has provided, which we're grateful for, I just want to ask you to do something with us uh, together as a church. I believe God's going to give our church a place of our own here pretty soon. I really do. I believe that. We need it. We've outgrown the colony, quite honestly, and uh, we need a place of our own. And we're praying together as a team, as a leadership team, that God would open up those doors. I want to invite you to pray with us. And uh, who knows? We may be right on the doorstep of what God wants to provide next. And I just want to invite you into that process to see how God is going to provide for our church. All right, Luke chapter 6. Let me pray for us, and then we're just going to dive right into the scripture this morning, into our our brand new series. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for today. God, you're so good and kind to us. And I pray, God, as we open up the word together, God, you have the words of life. I pray that you would speak to us. The most important words spoken this morning, I pray, God, would be the words we read from the pages of scripture. God, it's the loudest voice in our church So God, we invite you to speak. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen. Well, we start a brand new series today. It's really a continuation of the last series that we've been in. We've been in the book of Luke so far, and uh, in the first series of the new year, we started this series called Unusual Suspects. We basically saw the types of people that Jesus is drawing to himself, that he's calling to himself, and that he's sending out into mission. And so the last series ended with the calling of 12 apostles. And so we pick up the text here in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20 today. And now that Jesus has called people to himself, he's about to send them out. But before he sends them out in Luke chapter 9, Jesus is going to train them. He's going to teach them and he's going to lay a basic foundation, if you will, for what it means to follow Jesus. And so we find ourselves here in Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20. Jesus has called 12 apostles. He's got other disciples who are following him, who are watching him, who are listening to everything that he's saying. And from now until the end of Luke chapter 6, Jesus is going to prepare these people for the basics of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is basic training. This is in essence, is what it is. In the book of Matthew, we have three entire chapters dedicated to basic training. We have three whole chapters. It's known as the Sermon on the Mount. In the book of Luke, though, we've got an abbreviated training here. We've got an abbreviated training. We really got one chapter, and Jesus is going to start this training here in verse 20, and he's going to frame everything he's about to say in, these, in his introductory training remarks 
with one word. The Greek word here that we're going to see often in these three verses we're going to look at today, the Greek word is makarios. In essence, what it means is happy. We translate it as blessed or blessed. But Jesus, uh, in essence, what it really means, it means to be happy. And so Jesus is going to use this word four times in three verses. If you do Bible study, you know if you see a word happening over and over and over again in a passage, it's a good indication as to what is the meaning and the context and what's being communicated in the passage. The fact that Jesus uses this word four times in three verses gives us a context clue as to what he's about to teach his apostles and his disciples. And it has to do with being happy. Now listen, I wonder if Jesus understands what's about to go on. I wonder if Jesus understands what's about to happen in the lives of the people he has called to himself and he's about to send out. I wonder if Jesus understands there's about to be some unfavorable circumstances in the lives of his apostles and his disciples. I wonder if Jesus understands today that there may be some unfavorable days ahead in your life as well. And so Jesus is going to start his training with those he's called to himself. He's about to send out with this concept of being happy, this concept of being blessed. We understand this teaching as the Beatitudes. In Matthew, we have eight Beatitudes. In Luke, we only have four. It's an abbreviated training. Now, I want you to understand before we jump into this passage this morning that what Jesus is about to say is flipped on its head to what culture would normally teach us about being happy. What Jesus is about to say is, is sort of an upside-down way of thinking. And maybe you come into church this morning and you don't have faith, you've never trusted your life to Jesus. First of all, I want to say we're glad you're here today. But I also want to say, even if you've never trusted your life to Jesus, I think some of this will make a little bit of sense today. So Luke chapter 6, starting in verse 20, I believe Jesus is going to show us four ways here to be happy. Now, look, we're not a four ways to do anything kind of church. We're not a your best life now kind of church. But I believe what Jesus is teaching us here has something to do with our happiness. And I believe it's going to be very instructive for us today. Luke chapter six, starting in verse 20. And this is what the scripture says. Looking at his disciples, he said, blessed there's that word, makarios, means happy. Blessed are you who are, what does he say? Poor. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, when you go to the book of Matthew, and Jesus is teaching this, this word is translated poor in spirit. Here in Luke, we see it translated as poor. This is probably the most important beatitude we have of all the eight beatitudes in Matthew, of all the four beatitudes we have in the book of Luke. In essence, being poor or being poor in spirit has this idea that we just don't believe that we have sufficient resources in our own power to face all that life is going to throw at us. Let me say it in a positive way. Let me say it in a positive way. In a positive way, being poor, what Jesus is talking about here, or being poor in spirit means we embrace daily dependence on God for everything we need. And so Jesus uses, I'm sorry, the New Testament here uses two words for this idea 
of poor. The first word conveys this idea of someone who is struggling financially. In other words, they, they barely have enough to eat. We call those people college students. And, uh, or in LA, we call them actors. And so that's the first word the New Testament uses to describe this concept of poor. That's not the concept that Jesus is teaching here in Luke chapter 6, verse 20. The second word is the Greek word tachos. This is the Greek word, tachos. It gives us this idea of someone being the outcast of society. It gives us the idea of someone who is despised. It also gives us this idea of someone who is so low in society, they're, they're actually or literally being spit on. Now, these are the types of people that Jesus has in mind as he's instructing his disciples here. These are the people that Jesus is talking about. These are the people who are going to receive the benefits of the kingdom. Now, let me try to explain this word for just a moment. Jesus uses this illustration later on in the book of Luke, chapter 18. And we see two men who are going to church, and these two men show up in church, and they both begin to pray. And one of those men who, who begins to pray, he bows down on his knees, and he cries out to God in this humble attitude, in his humble way, and he says, God, have mercy on me because I'm a sinner. And so we see this guy in Luke chapter 18. The scripture describes him as a tax collector. He's begging God for help and mercy. And then we see the other guy in the story that Jesus tells. And the other guy is also in church praying. And he walks to the front of the line so everybody can see him. And he stands up and he begins to pray out loud. And he says something like this, we assume. Thank God I'm not like this poor guy. I can take care of myself, and on top of that, I am extremely religious. And so Jesus uses this illustration in this story. And Jesus says, the guy who stood up in front of everyone and says, thank God I'm not like the rest of these people. Jesus says that person who was known as the Pharisee walked away from church that day in his own righteousness. But the tax collector in his humility, who begged God for mercy, Jesus says, that man went home justified. In other words, the tax collector who came in in humility and dependence on God, he came in the church poor, but he left with the help of God. He left with the righteousness of God. I think that's so good to describe what Jesus is trying to say here when he uses this word poor. One pastor said, God only fills empty hands. If you come to church this morning and you believe, you know what, I, I, I've got enough righteousness, I've got my own righteousness, I'm full of righteousness, and I don't need any more righteousness apart from God, I've got a lot of goodness, then I, I want to say to you this morning, you're the type of person that does not receive God's righteousness. You're the type of person that does not receive God's help. But if like the tax collector this morning, you're, you're poor in righteousness, you're rich in God, but poor in yourself, you're the kind of person that can receive God's righteousness. You're the kind of person that can receive God's help. We can make a lot of applications about what Jesus is saying here. Maybe you're a parent this morning and you believe, you know what, I'm, <clears throat> I'm capable. I, I'm capable without God's power for parenting this morning. My wife flew out to Atlanta at 6.30 a.m. this morning. Let me just testify, I am not capable as a parent apart from the power of God. Maybe this morning 
You say, I'm capable of handling all of my relationships in life. I don't need God's supernatural help with, with grace and forgiveness and mercy in my relationships. Maybe, maybe you're an incredible businessman or, or a salesperson today, and you're incredibly dynamic, and you're like, I don't need God to interfere and provide his guidance and his wisdom and his help. Well, I believe Luke is telling us here that when we depend on God's provision, when we depend on his help, when we depend on his wisdom, when we depend on his righteousness, that's when we have access to his power. I was reminded of this concept this week, a friend of ours, one of our elders, I don't know if he's here this morning, but we're dealing with something in our church that we just need God's supernatural help. We just at this place in, in, in our life and leadership in our church, we just know we can't push enough buttons or move enough pieces on the, on, on the game board to make it happen. And I was talking with Josh this week, and he, and he just reminded me, he said, we need to be reminded that the heart of a king is like water in the hands of God. We need to be dependent on God in this, Matt. But you know what? That's, that's upside down thinking from, from how we've spent most of our lives, isn't it? That's upside down thinking, that's, that's flip thinking, because for most of us, we spent most of our life trying to believe or believing that, 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 that we are anything but poor in spirit, that we're anything but needing to be dependent on someone else. Isn't that the way we normally think? We, we spend our entire lives building our lives on this concept. I'm not dependent on anyone. I can make everything happen. I feel like I'm more than sufficient to meet all of my needs in my own strength for whatever task, for whatever responsibility, for whatever job, whatever is in front of me. I feel like I can do it on my own. We want to believe I've got it all under control. I've got no need to worry about the future. But church, that posture is the posture that keeps us cut off from God's help. That's the posture that keeps us cut off from God's help. Furthermore, it contaminates our spirit. That sort of attitude contaminates our spirit. Jesus is teaching us here, you need to be rich in me and poor in yourself. But so many of us have spent our entire lives believing I am rich in myself and I have no need to be rich in God. Well, how do you know this morning that you're rich in yourself? Do you understand what I'm saying? How do you understand this morning? How do you know that you're rich in yourself? Well, let me just try to give you a couple ways. The first is that you're proud and, and you're condescending towards other people. That's sort of like the Pharisee we saw in Luke chapter 18. It's, it's, this, it's this way of living where we believe nobody's as capable, nobody is as good as I am. We see other people as weak. We see other people as subordinate to us. And by the way, that's the inevitable way to see the world when we're just dependent on ourselves. And by the way, that way of seeing the world results in this endless cycle of comparison and competition of comparison and competition. Do you know people who, who are boastful about, about their vices, their sins, the things that they engage in? People who are boastful about their vices and their sins, they tend to be people who can get along with other people who are boastful about their sins and their vices and all of the things that they love to do. They can get together and brag about all of those things they love to do. But do you know proud people have an extremely difficult time getting along with other proud people. Do you know that? 
Proud people have a difficult time getting along with other proud people. To a proud person, it doesn't matter that you're smart. It doesn't matter that you've got a large Instagram following. It doesn't matter that you're beautiful. What matters is that you are more than these people in these other things. And so to the proud person, proud people hate proud people. Pride is always in conflict with someone else's. The great author C.S. Lewis says, the great author C.S. Lewis says, the quickest way to tell if you're prideful is whether somebody else's pride bothers you. (laughs) Pride happens when we become rich in ourselves rather than in God. There's a second way to tell if we're rich in ourselves, and it's related to this pride. And the second way to tell if we're rich in ourselves is whether or not we're self-focused. The Pharisee prays to himself in Luke chapter 18. Why? Because it's all he thinks about. He's only thinking about himself. The second way to tell if you're rich in yourself is this concept of being self-focused. I read this article this week in USA Today. It was an article published on May the 22nd of this year, and the title of the article said, Perfect Selfies Are All Over Facebook, Instagram, and Snapchat. They're Killing Us. And the article asked the question, selfie or it didn't happen is all fun and games, but at what point does curiosity and leisure cross over into an unhealthy obsession? The article goes on to quote a psychotherapist, And that psychotherapist says, you have to really be honest with yourself. If the process of taking them or posting them is anxiety-inducing, or if you start to feel nervous when you can't check your notifications, then you might be getting into trouble. The article, that's sort of funny, but the article goes on, and it says that people are literally killing themselves taking selfies. The All India Institute of Medical Sciences has found that 259 people died while taking a selfie between October 2011 and November 2017. And why do we take selfies in the first place? Well, the article says, experts say the behavior, listen to this, this is a secular article, experts say the behavior can be rooted in a form of narcissism that's directly connected to the human ego. Isn't that amazing? Modern science, 2,000 years later, is confirming everything that Jesus is saying. When you are self-focused, it leads to a place in life where you believe you don't need help from God and you're cut off from God. And Jesus is saying this self-focus is detrimental to your way of living. The article says selfies are literally killing us. How do you know that you're rich in yourself? You're self-focused. You understand this. We, social media is, is mainstream. Social media is not built on this concept of displaying our desperation in life. Social media is built on the concept of us posting about ourselves so that other people can be in wonder and awe about how awesome we are. And even when we try to be humble about it, have you ever seen somebody post this? Even when we try to be humble about it, humbled by the opportunity to spend time with this famous person today, really? (laughs) Humble. And what's worse is that when we live self-focused lives and we have kids and we begin to multiply this self-focus in how we raise our kids, my 10-year-old is getting crushed in fantasy football this year. And it's a, it's, a, it's a league of all adults. And one of those adults texted me a couple of weeks ago, hey man, sorry, I beat Deacon in, uh, in fantasy football uh, t- this week. 
And I text it back, hey, it's, it's, it's literally all good. It's all good. I'm glad you beat him in some ways, right? Losing is not bad. Losing is not bad. I don't want my son to think that he should win everything at all times, in all ways. Some people think that's bad parenting. You should just build them all up all the time. I mean, I respect their right to be wrong, but listen to me. I don't want... <laughs> my kids to think and to always believe that they are the center of the universe at all times. Sometimes you don't get the job. Sometimes you don't get the raise. Sometimes other people get the job. And if my kids think that they should always get everything at all times, and I'm proliferating this idea that we should always be focused on ourselves. The third way to tell if you're rich in yourself is that you become ungrateful. Is that you become ungrateful. This is probably the worst effect of being self-focused. You're always focused on what you think. You're always focused on what other people think about you. You're always focused on what you're entitled to, how everyone hasn't met your needs, how you deserve more, how somebody has wronged you. Can I say this to you this morning? Guess what? Guess what? That way of thinking leads to being unhappy. Some of you can identify with that this morning. And can I further say that ungrateful people are unhappy people? Ungrateful people are unhappy people. Consider the person who thinks that this morning, this day, this hour, this breath is a gift of God. Every day is a gift of God. That person is grateful. That person is happy. I'm going to further say to you this morning that grateful people are happy people. Grateful people are happy people. And the place we need to be in life, the posture we need to have towards life that Jesus is teaching us here is that we need to be poor in ourselves and rich in relying on God. Consider a few people in scripture and how they describe themselves. Gideon. Gideon said, I am the smallest man from the smallest tribe. David said, who am I, God, that you should offer to build me a house and promise me all of these things? Isaiah said, woe is me. Paul said, I am the chief sinner. People who are rich in God and dependent on God have access to the power of God. And can I further say, those people are insanely happy people. Here's the first way to be happy according to Jesus. Be rich in God and dependent on him and be poor in ourselves. Now look at verse 21. Jesus is going to tell us the next way to be happy. Verse 21 says, blessed are you who hunger now. Blessed are you who hunger now for you will be what? Satisfied. Now there's a second part to verse 21, but let me just just talk about this first half of verse 21 for just a moment. All of us are hungry in some way. And by that, I don't mean physically hungry. I mean, we all spend our lives in pursuit of something. Blaise Pascal once wrote, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man, which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but by only God, the creator made known through Jesus Christ. We're all hungry for something. We're all in pursuit of something in life. And for all of humanity, humanity has always tried to fill that God-shaped vacuum that Blaise Pascal talks about with a plethora of different things. We, we try to fill that God-shaped vacuum with getting married. 
We try to fill that God-shaped vacuum with making money, building a family, building an Instagram following, excelling in our career, finding pleasure and comfort, becoming debt-free. Imagine this morning taking your favorite cup, your morning cup, and you fill it up with whatever your morning drink is, coffee or orange juice, be it six ounces, 10 ounces, eight ounces, however big your cup is. Imagine this morning taking your favorite cup and filling it up with your favorite breakfast drink. No, imagine taking a bucket so large this morning that we try to dump the entirety of the Pacific Ocean into that large bucket, and the Pacific Ocean doesn't even fill the bottom of the surface of that large bucket. That's your soul. That's your soul this morning. And our hearts are longing for something that only something infinite can fill. Our hearts are longing for something that so only infinite can fill. Can I just say to you this morning, church, money will never do it. Money will never do it. You'll always be longing for more of it. Money will never do it. Success will never do it. Why? Because you just become self-focused. We know where that leads. Approval can never do it. We become obsessed with ourselves all the time. Love cannot do it. We become jealous, obsessive, unhappy. The great theologian, who would be 1,900 years old today, St. Augustine said, God has made us for himself, and we are restless until our souls have found rest in him. Giving our hungry hearts to an infinite God is the only thing that will satisfy that hunger. Here's the second way to be happy this morning. Give your hungry heart to an infinite God to fill your hungry desires. Now look at the second half of verse 21. The second half of verse 21 says, you who now weep are blessed. There's the word again, because you will laugh. You who now weep are blessed because you will laugh. Now, Jesus is not specific here about what we're weeping about. If you read the book of Matthew, the word is translated there, mourning. And it's true that when we're weeping and we're mourning, we're in this vulnerable place. We're in this place where we feel powerless. We're in this place where we feel weak. And it's true that in that place, God can comfort us. But I believe the concept that Jesus is driving to here is a little bit deeper. I believe the weeping has something to do with other people. You understand this. I experienced it this week with one of my very good friends. His father passed away suddenly. He preached a message on Wednesday night at his church. He had a stroke that, uh, that evening and passed away the next day. I wept with my friend. I mourned with my friend. I felt the pain of someone else. In John chapter 11, Jesus has a friend named Lazarus, and Jesus receives word that Lazarus has died. And so Jesus waits two days to go to his friends and see his family. And so there's friends and family that are there mourning. And we see Martha and Mary, who are friends of Jesus. They, they called to Jesus. They had prepared a, a, a place for Jesus to come and, and have a meal. They had anointed Jesus' feet with oil. And when Jesus shows up and he hears their mourning and he sees their sadness, the Bible says Jesus was so moved that he what? He wept. Why did Jesus weep? Why did Jesus weep in John chapter 11? I believe Jesus wept because he cared so deeply about his friends. Jesus felt their pain. Jesus was empathetic to their loss. 
I believe there's another dynamic to Jesus' weeping there, and I believe it's also because Jesus knows that his suffering is coming. His own suffering is coming. He knew it wouldn't be long until he's experiencing the same death, but Jesus had to suffer, and Jesus had to weep. Why? So that one day we would not have to. Revelation chapter 21, verse 4 encourages us, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. But now listen to me. But you know, I just sense, even in my own life, the older we get, the older we get, the trajectory of our lives tends to be more towards isolation rather than integration with other people. I'm guilty of it as well. We tend to want to know our neighbors less. We tend to want to invest in other people less. We tend to want to share a meal less with friends or even a small group. I don't know, maybe maybe it's just something in our lives that just believes if I can just have a good marriage and good kids and and have an enjoyable vacation and and, and create a nest tag, maybe that's that's the path to having a happy, fulfilled life. But I believe what Jesus is saying to us here in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, is that when we enter relationally into life with other people, When they experience sadness, that sadness is halved. When they experience joy, that joy is doubled. I think what Jesus is saying here when he says, blessed are you who weep, Jesus is saying we will never experience happiness when our heart begins to close in on itself, when our life begins to get darker, when we become more self-focused. I think what Jesus is saying here, the third way to be happy is that happy are those who open their hearts and their homes and their lives to the joy and the pain of others. Now, I'm not said it in a few minutes, but this is upside down thinking. This is a flipped way of, of believing um, how life can be happy, isn't it? Just make sure you're taken care of and let everybody else serve your needs. But Jesus is saying, enter relationally into other people's lives. Open your life, open your heart, open your home. And when you do, those are the places when you share joy and pain with others. And the result is happiness. Blessed are you when you help somebody else pull their wagon up the hill. Blessed are you, happy are you when you give yourself to something that's not your own deal. Blessed are you when you choose to have kids even though it messes up your agenda and your plans. Blessed are you when you enter into somebody else's life and identify with their community that's unlike your own. You'll be happier, Jesus says, when you enter relationally into the joy and the pain of others. Now, let me give you this last way and I'm almost done. Verse 22, Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and they insult you and they reject your name. Now, pause just for a moment. Let's be clear what Jesus is talking about here. Jesus is not talking about being insulted. He's not talking about being hated because you were a jerk to somebody. Jesus is talking about blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, insult you, reject you. Why? When they call your name evil, why do they call your name evil? Because of the Son of Man. Jesus is talking about people who are living out their faith 
and their faith is more important to them than being accepted by others. Now, I believe in Western Christianity, we're going to teach this verse a lot more in the coming years, but let me try to summarize it by saying this. People who are happy value being right with God above being accepted by others. This is the fourth way to be happy. Value your standing with God more than your acceptance by others. It's true that all of us are going to die. It's true that those who are Christians and believers have an eternal home with eternal joy reserved for us. It's also true that those who suffer now, today, on this earth, in this limited life, because of our faith, Jesus says we're going to have a greater glimpse, a greater glimpse of the eternal joy that's waiting for us. Now, let me close here, and let's just remember the context of what's happening. Jesus has called some apostles to himself. He's got disciples who are following him. And I wonder if Jesus just has this understanding. You don't know it yet, but I know there's some unfavorable circumstances ahead some unfavorable circumstances ahead. And there's going to be moments where your circumstances don't lend themselves to happiness. Remember the context here. Jesus is giving his disciples and his apostles a good principle from the Beatitudes. And here's the principle. Happiness is not what happens when what you want to happen happens to you. Do you understand? Happiness is not what happens when you, what you want to happen happens to you. Do you understand what he's saying here? Then what is happiness? Happiness, according to Jesus, is the fruit of a right relationship with God. Now, let me just pose a question to us before we close and try to make this very practical. Let me try to frame what Jesus is saying here. Church, if your circumstances didn't change at all from this moment forward, if that situation did not change, if the career did not pan out, your marital status doesn't change, your career doesn't progress, your body doesn't feel better, let me just frame this, could you be happy with life? I believe when we read the life of Jesus, we look at Jesus, and Jesus is actually our worst nightmare. Jesus was single his whole life. Jesus never owned a home. Jesus had friends who left him. Jesus had people who hated him. Jesus had people who did not understand him. Yet the scripture says, for the joy set before him, he endured it all. Can I just close this morning by saying that happiness in your circumstances will always leave you disappointed. But being rightly related to Jesus is where you'll find joy. For some of you this morning, you came into church, and we're grateful that you're here, but the journey of beginning to be happy and joyous begins by trusting your life to Jesus and allowing Jesus to change you and save you from the inside out, to transform you. And for some of you here this morning, you've, you've never entered into that relationship. And can I say to you today, that's where happiness begins. A lot of what Jesus has just taught is upside down, an upside-down way of thinking. 
And some of it makes no sense until you've trusted your life to Jesus and you've acknowledged before him, Jesus, I know that my sin has offended you and there's a problem between you and I as we currently stand. And until that problem is solved, nothing will be right in life. If you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to encourage you, today is the day of salvation. As we close, we're going to sing a song here in just a moment. After that song, there's going to be some friends down front. They would love to help you walk through what it means to trust your life to Jesus. For the rest of us here today, maybe you're walking through some unfavorable circumstances. Maybe things haven't changed. The job hasn't changed. Or how you're feeling physically has not changed. And maybe Jesus is pointing you to a greater reality than your circumstances today reminding us that happiness is not what happens when what we want to happen happens to us, but happiness is the fruit of being rightly related to God. Maybe there's something in your life today. You need to come before God and say, God, I just need to ask your forgiveness. God, I need you to write the ship. I need you to write my heart and direct it and point it towards you so that my eyes and my focus are firmly set on you. Can I pray for you this morning if that's you? Just bow your heads, close your eyes. I want to pray for us. Lord, thank you for today, God. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to open the scriptures this morning. God, I pray for people all over this auditorium. God, I'm confident that there are people who are struggling with this concept of happiness. Things haven't gone the way they hoped. Careers haven't progressed like they had imagined. Relationships are are all over the map. God, by the Spirit of the living God this morning, by the Holy Spirit, would you draw us back to a right relationship with you, God? Confessing our sins, repenting of our sins, turning towards you, God. God, I thank you for our church this morning. I pray for those who are here who've never entered into a relationship with you, who've never trusted you for salvation. God, I pray that today would be the day. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.